Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO, Dan Mary Ashland. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned for my conversation about Ajiri BBI, the American Jewish International Relations Institute, which works to reverse longstanding anti-Israel discrimination at the United Nations. Just one brief reminder, check out our series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith, and all of our interviews on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with diplomats, historians, Holocaust survivors, Middle East experts, even the first Jewish American male astronaut in space. And get our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. Since its founding in 2005, AJIRI, the American Jewish International Relations Institute, has been forward thinking about combating anti-Israel bias at the United Nations. The United Nations across all of its agencies takes actions meant to undermine and delegitimize Israel. The anti-Israel bias is pervasive throughout the UN from its main bodies and committees and through to its most specialized agencies. Ambassador Richard Shifter launched a jury to get directly into the UN sphere to reverse long-standing anti-Israel discrimination. Ajiri's work has resulted in important vote changes at the United Nations, with fewer countries now supporting the annual UN resolutions that renew mandates and funding for the UN's anti-Israel propaganda apparatus. In September of 2020, Ajiri became an affiliate of B'nai B'rith. Now known as Ajiri BBI, it works directly with B'nai B'rith's longstanding Office of United Nations Affairs to overcome anti-Israel efforts ingrained at the UN. Benebrith has been accredited at the world body since 1947. Ajiri BBI continues to advance the groundbreaking work both organizations have undertaken separately in the arena of fair treatment for Israel on the world stage. Working together enhances both organizations' efforts to work for a safer and more secure Israel. With us today to talk about anti-Israel bias at the UN and why it's imperative to combat it are Rick Shifter and Gil Kaker. Rick Shifter is the chair of Ajiri BBI and is the son of Ajiri founder, Ambassador Richard Shifter. Rick Shifter has been a senior advisor at the private equity firm TPG since 2013 and was a partner at TPG from 1994 through 2013. And prior to joining TPG, Rick was a partner at the Washington, D.C. law firm of Arnold and Porter. He serves on a number of corporate boards and also serves on the board of advisors of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Also with us today is Ajiri BBI Executive Director, Gil Capen. Gil spent many years on Capitol Hill as a senior congressional staff member. He served as foreign and defense policy advisor to Congressman Dan Burton, as Republican professional staff on the House Africa Subcommittee, and as staff director of the House Western Hemisphere Committee. He represented numerous Israeli and American companies doing business in Africa. I've collaborated with Rick and Gil for a number of years, and it's an honor to have them on the BBI podcast today. Rick and Gil, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Well, a jury often holds um, events together with think tanks, State Department, other venues, produces and distributes educational materials, website to raise awareness of anti-Israel bias at the U.N., Tell us about the UN committees in particular that 
intersect with those institutions. The Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, known by the abbreviation SEREP, the Division for Palestinian Rights, known as DPR, and the Special Committee to Investigate Israeli Practices Affecting the Human Rights of the Palestinian People, uh, also nicknamed SIREP. So, uh, Gil, why don't you start and tell us a little about these committees, how they came into being, and uh, the, the challenge and the threat that they present to us. Sure. Thank you, Dan. Good to be with you. I think it's important when discussing uh, these institutions within the UN, these unique institutions that have no parallel in the UN system, to look at the context. There's an interesting new book that was recently published called Israel's Moment by Professor Jeffrey Herf. And he goes into the story of how when Israel was created, when the UN decided on the partition in 1947, the Soviet Union and the United States both supported uh, the formation of the state of Israel. And uh, the Soviet Union did not have a hostile uh, uh, posture towards Israel in those early years, hoping that Israel would become part of the Soviet orbit. When it became clear that Israel was not going to be uh, part of the uh, Soviet uh, alliance, but instead was an ally of the West, the Soviet Union became very hostile towards Israel and uh, instituted a policy, a very hostile policy towards Israel, which was part of its hostility towards the West. And that became even more exacerbated after the Six-Day War. At the UN, uh, which created Israel in 1947 uh, through the partition resolution, the hostility towards Israel really started ratcheting up in the 70s. Uh, many people remember that Yasser Arafat was welcomed at the United Nations in 1974. And on the occasion of his uh, speech before the United Nations, he, the, the UN passed a resolution enumerating the rights of the Palestinian people, including the right of return, which we'll get to uh, a little later on. The next year, in 1975, the apex of the anti-Israel campaign took place with the passage of the infamous Zionism is Racism resolution on November 10th, uh, which was really a shameful moment in the history of the UN. Uh, but what is not as much remembered is that on the very same day that Zionism is Racism was passed, the General Assembly created the Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, this very unique institution that was devoted solely to advancing the rights of the Palestinian people. There's no other committee in the UN system that has the mandate of just advancing uh, the interests of one particular people. Um, previous to that, in 1968, the UN had created the Special Committee to Investigate Israeli human rights practices, which continues its activities to this day. And that special committee, also completely unique in the UN system, except for one precedent on which it was modeled after, which was a special committee to investigate apartheid South Africa. So the whole point of the setting up of this special committee in 68, and then later on uh, the other two institutions in 75 and 77, was to equate Israel with South Africa, to make Israel a pariah, to create the impression and to say in the name of the UN, actually, that Israel is a unique force for evil in the world. 
1975, when the, spe- when the committee was created, it had to receive a mandate every year from the United Nations. So every year since 1975, the committee has to be uh, reauthorized and refunded by the UN body. In 77, as I mentioned before, another institution was created. That was the Division for Palestinian Rights, which basically serves as the staff for the Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People. So basically, you have these three anomalous institutions in the UN operating no other parallel for any other country, for any other people, and continuing to propagandize against Israel to advance the most extreme Palestinian narrative, to call the creation of Israel in 1948 the Nakba, the catastrophe, uh, to accuse Israel of apartheid, to advance BDS and other destructive acts against Israel. And in all this time, close to 50 years now, with all the changes that have taken place in the Middle East, with negotiations, with Israel making peace with several Arab, Arab countries, with the Abraham Accords, these institutions within the UN continue to operate as if nothing else has happened. As you mentioned, Dan, the support for these institutions is eroding, but it's really time to put them to bed and, and to shut them down. And, and Gil, it's worth adding that the General Assembly, in fact, repealed the Zionism as racism resolution in the early 90s, yet um, did not address the infrastructure that was established at the, at the same time. Right. It's, it's actually 31 years. Uh, it was 1991, I think, when it was repealed. Rick, um, we'll come back to the committees in a second. Uh, tell us about how a jury started specifically. Tell us about your, your father and why was combating anti-Israel bias in the UN so important to him? I mean, he, he was really a man of parts, um, served in, in various administrations. Tell us about him and what motivated him to move to create uh, a jury. Sure. Uh, well, to understand my father's motivations, you need to understand or know about his history. He was uh, born in uh, Vienna in 1923, uh, the child of uh, two um, Polish uh, citizens who had moved to uh, Vienna. Uh, and by 1938, with the uh, Nazis taking over in Austria, uh, his parents uh, realized that it was no longer tolerable to remain there. And they sought visas from the United States in order to uh, emigrate to to the U.S. Um, my father, being uh, born in Austria, was able to get a visa, uh, while his parents, as uh, natives of Poland, were unable to get their visas. And his parents decided to send their only child, a uh, 15-year-old, to New York uh, to live with um, uh, cousins. Uh, and that was the last time my dad saw his parents, who subsequently died in the Holocaust. Uh, after uh, graduating from college, uh, my dad enlisted in the Army, served um, actually in the post-war government uh, in Berlin, returned to the United States, went to law school, uh, spent first 30 years of his professional life practicing law, primarily representing American Indian tribes. And then uh, so the next several decades of his career, he spent in public service. Now, while he was practicing law, he was also active in public service in a number of different ways, uh, including being quite active in the uh, local Democratic Party in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, where he got to know Gene Kirkpatrick. After Gene uh, was appointed to serve as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, she had recommended to then-President Ronald Reagan that my dad be appointed as the U.S. Ambassador to the Human Rights Commission, the U.N. Human Rights Commission in Geneva, where, where he served. And, and my dad had always had 
and interest in global affairs, something that was instilled in him by his mother uh, back in Vienna when, when he was a, a young boy. And, uh, and this gave him an opportunity to sort of see what was going on on the uh, world stage. He then uh, served as deputy ambassador of the United Nations uh, for the Security Council under Gene Kirkpatrick. And subsequently, um, President Reagan appointed him uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs, uh, a position to which uh, George H.W. Bush reappointed him. Uh, he then served in both terms of the Clinton administration, in various capacities also focused on global human rights issues, uh, and retired from uh, government service on uh, January 20th, 2001. At that point, my dad decided that uh, you know he, he did want to focus his efforts on the UN. Uh, I would describe my dad as, as uh, always optimistic and, uh, and felt that, uh, or really believed in uh, the good of people generally. And he certainly believed in the mission of the UN and having spent time in New York and uh, seeing firsthand what was going on, uh, he felt while well, obviously there was a significant element of um, anti-Israel and anti-Semitic uh, entities at work at the UN uh, that, in fact, um, the majority of countries did not take that point of view. Uh, and, uh, and the problem was that the other side was just much better organized at delivering votes on critical resolutions. And he felt that, uh, you know, if the United States took more of an active role in uh, encouraging countries otherwise friendly to the U.S., and uh, with no hostility towards Israel, to simply align their voting behavior in a way that sort of reflected their underlying beliefs that you could take steps to dismantle uh, this anti-Israel infrastructure that had been created at the UN. And he felt in order to do that, if he had an organization that was sort of dedicated to that effort, uh, that he could help uh, communicate the message more broadly and educate countries on the uh, harm that was being created by allowing these uh, entities to continue to exist. And that's what led him to form Ajiri, an organization of, uh, uh, with a singular purpose uh, and really just seeking to dismantle the anti-Israel infrastructure at the UN and using that entity for, for that purpose it could elevate the level of attention uh, on the harm being caused and and why these countries should reassess uh, their voting patterns. You know, I think there's a um, there's a tendency, Gil, uh, for folks to think, you know, the UN, I think it has over 190, 194 um, member states that, um, you know, everybody votes. It's, sing you know, singular voting, you know, as we would vote here on any on any issue. But that's not necessarily the case. There's block voting at the UN, which carries with it, if, it's, if it heads in the wrong direction, as it does with this anti-Israel activity, you have these big blocks of votes and, and um, you know, they can wind up being, you know, 130 to 18 or, um, you know, whatever the vote is, it's, it's, it's lopsided. Tell us a little about how that voting works at the UN and how does Jerry BBI, how are you addressing these double standards and that lopsidedness in, in the voting process? Yeah, Dan, that's a very important uh, issue uh, to go into. Um, and Rick mentioned that Ambassador Shifter, through his experience at the UN, was able to see this problem, which he 
identified, which he called the United States in opposition. It's actually uh, an article that was written by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the great U.S. ambassador in the mid-70s, had coined that phrase. Uh, But unfortunately, even today, 30 years after the end of the Cold War, we're still seeing it. We're still seeing the United States in opposition at the U.N., where you have somewhere around 140 countries that vote against the United States more than 50% of the time, and then a minority group of about 50 or so countries that vote with the United States more than 50% of the time. And if you look at the makeup of those blocks, you see that uh, it's pretty consistent. You have you know, almost all of Asia, almost all of Africa, and most of Latin America voting against the United States more than 50% of the time. And then you have, of course, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Israel, South Korea, Japan, and some other countries in the South Pacific voting with the United States. Exacerbating the problem is that you have these blocks that you mentioned, Dan, that carry over from the Cold War, and they still hold sway within the UN system. You have, first of all, when it comes to Israel, you have the Arab League, that's about 20 countries. You have the Islamic countries, the the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is about 57 countries. And then you have the non-aligned movement, which is around 120 countries. And even though the whole concept behind the non-aligned movement has become more and more irrelevant over time, the impact of the voting is still there. So you have, uh, as you correctly mentioned, a situation where Israel has good relations with many countries, most of the countries at the UN today. Certainly the United States uh, does not have hostile relations with so many countries at the UN as it did during the, the Cold War. And yet this voting pattern continues. So when it comes to these institutions within the UN, or writ large, the Palestinian, the pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli uh, voting every year, and and it, it it ought to be mentioned that every year there are anywhere between fifteen and twenty, sometimes more resolutions every single year at the United Nations on roll call votes against Israel, targeting Israel. We're focused on the three that we referenced because, unlike the other resolutions in that group. The ones that we're focused on actually have consequences. They have budgets, they have ongoing activities, they undermine efforts towards peace and reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians. And what you see is that on these other votes, these, for lack of a better term, hot air resolutions condemning Israel in a declaratory way, we condemn Israel for this, we condemn Israel for that. These three bodies within the UN uh, that have to be approved used to be every year, now it's every two years, they garner much less affirmative votes on a year-by-year basis now and and declining. So on some of these other votes, you'll get 140, 150 votes against Israel, almost by rote. On the institutions we're talking about, we're now down to between 80 and 90, 91 votes in favor. Uh, significant uh, drop in support. It used to be, for example, that uh, even the committee and the division, the special committee would get 130 votes uh, in favor. Now the the committee is down to uh, 90, the division is down to 82, and the special committee is down into the late 70s, uh, the high 70s. It's and Dan, it's worth uh, pointing out though that while as as Gil's right, these resolutions are receiving now less than half of uh, the countries voting in favor of them. Uh, 
they still pass because under the UN rules, you only look at those countries voting yes and no. And because these resolutions have budgetary significance under the uh, rules of the General Assembly, in order to pass, they require uh, a, an affirmative vote from two thirds of those countries voting yes and no. And while the, the no votes have been climbing, there's still way too many abstentions uh, or absences, uh, which is the same thing. And I think a lot of countries sort of realize or believe rather that, that um, abstention is a way of sort of being neutral. Uh, and our effort is really focused on saying, no, by abstaining, you're not being neutral. You're allowing this anti-Israel, anti-two-state solution infrastructure to continue to exist. Uh, what you really need to do is is vote no if you want to further um, efforts towards peace. Uh, and it's it's countries that are friendly to the U.S., friendly to Israel. There's sort of no excuse other than um, inertia uh, that uh, has and and lack of focus and awareness of the issue. And our goal is to increase awareness of the issue, get these countries to understand what the consequences of their abstentions are and hopefully persuade them then to, to move into the no column. Yeah, Rick, we've just, um, all the three of us, uh, have, have had a number of meetings over many months, but we've just come through a round of meetings in New York at the UN with heads of delegations, various countries, raising the issue of these Palestinian committees, among other uh, issues. But from what you're seeing, Rick, when the arguments are placed forth in, in these discussions, particularly now in light of the Abraham Accords, which Gil referenced. I mean, if Bahrain and the UAE and Morocco can see their way through not only to normalization of relations with Israel, but establishing full diplomatic relations with Israel, it should follow that uh, countries which are not even in the region and who profess to have an interest in Israeli-Palestinian issue might be moved uh, into into the into the no category. What's your sense from having sat through these meetings very recently about the the argumentation that we make at the table in terms of of turning these votes around? Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand where where is decision making as to how these countries uh, should vote uh, taking place. And our, in our experience, this isn't something that's simply delegated to the ambassadors in New York representing the countries at the UN. They, they take instructions uh, from the capitals on, on how to vote. And so uh, for us, the challenge is sort of getting the message to relevant decision makers at, the, at these countries uh, to be able to engage in the type of discussion you're talking about. And it, of the, you know, sort of the list of top issues in terms of bilateral relations between the U.S. and these countries or Israel and these countries, how they vote at the U.N. is really not at the top of the list. So, so it is a matter of elevating the significance of it, educating these people. And in fact, when you, when you meet with these countries that, again, are otherwise friendly to the U.S. and Israel, you know, we're not, we're not meeting with Iranians. You know, it, we're meeting with countries that should be sympathetic. There is no argument made against the position that we're taking. Uh, and it, 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 in many instances, we've met foreign ministers, it seems like it's news to them about this whole issue, and, and, and they weren't, weren't aware of it. And, and we get a, a sympathetic hearing. But um, I think, again, sort of getting them the ultimate decision maker to actually focus on this and take the affirmative action of providing instructions to the ambassador, yeah, we want you to change your vote. 
is, is the real challenge. And part of it is that these resolutions aren't considered in isolation and on the merits of the specific resolutions. These voting patterns are a function of relationships across a broad set of issues. And, and for a country to move from abstaining to voting no is a significant step that has consequences. And it's not like the Palestinians and their allies aren't focused on this issue and lobbying countries. And so for a country to sort of take that step, they know they're going to offend countries that they're otherwise um, may you know, be trying to uh, uh, have a good relationship with. And, and it may be that it's a country that's hoping to get elected to the Security Council and is concerned, well, if, you know, we, we uh, take this step and vote no on these resolutions, then there are a bunch of countries that will no longer you know, be prepared to vote for us to uh, go on the Security Council. So, so on the merits, we have a very persuasive case to be made. But in the context of how countries ultimately vote um, at the General Assembly, it becomes a little bit more challenging. And, you know, the good news is that we are making progress. We've seen a reasonable decline in the uh, uh, number of countries uh, voting yes. And then getting the shift of countries abstaining to voting no is, I think, a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, a couple of years ago, Germany took a significant step in, in moving that direction. The Europeans, by and large, have just been abstaining. And, uh, and with Germany moving to vote against the, the division, uh, we saw a number of other countries also vote uh, no on that resolution. And, and that's where we need to continue to make progress. No, I, uh, I remember always Ambassador Shifter would, would talk about where the decisions are made. And you're absolutely right. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just in New York without any you know, calling, as, as we say, the home office. Uh, sometimes there are instructions. We've had, as, as the three of us know, We've had discussions with presidents of countries who are generally sympathetic uh, to what it is we're trying to do here, and yet uh, they have colleagues either in their foreign ministry or in New York or in Washington who who see things um, uh, a different way. Gil, uh, what do you what do you think is is the the way to to break through all of this? Given some of the changes in the region, we talked about the Abraham Accords, but given the way that the winds are shifting in the region and that so many years now have, have passed, how can, how can we break through? Because the Palestinians clearly see the field of play at the UN as a, a, a tremendous plus. I mean, it just, just advances, or I should say reinforces their narrative through all of these resolutions, not just these committees, but through, through all uh, other means of, uh, of working the system. So how do we break through? Yeah, look, I think that, um... It's important to emphasize what Ambassador Shifter used to talk about all the time, the disconnect between the real world and UN world. And in the UN, Rick was talking about the, the deals that are made and the pressures that, uh, that exist. Uh, countries want to get elected to the Security Council or the uh, Human Rights Commission. And, and sometimes there are consequences, and we've seen it time and time again. It used to be in the, in the Cold War days, the Soviet Union would direct these votes, and Cuba was the whip. The Cuban operatives at the UN were very, very skillful at lining up votes. Today, in recent years, the Palestinian delegation at the UN itself has taken over the job, and they still have sway because I think, first of all, there's still a fear, rational or irrational as it may be, of consequences, but also there's a reluctance to be seen as opposing the Palestinians. Throughout all these years, this this concept or this idea that the Palestinians 
deserve sympathy and the Palestinians. And by the way, we are not anti-Palestinians. We, we're not advocating against the Palestinians. There's this uh, misconception I think a lot of countries have that if they abstain or they don't vote, they're staying neutral. But actually, by allowing these institutions to continue to exist, they are giving aid and comfort to an apparatus that is very hostile towards Israel. President Abbas was at the UN a couple of weeks ago, made a very extremist speech once again. He called uh, the creation of Israel again a Nakba, a catastrophe, uh, and said it was a disgrace to humanity. If you're a country that believes that, then by all means, you should support these institutions and these types of activities. But I don't think that goes for most of the countries at the UN. So I think the answer to your question is the educational component of all this is important to get the facts out there. I don't think there's enough realization of what is going on within the UN and in the name of the UN. That's an important part. These institutions are not outside bodies. They're within the UN itself, acting in the name of the international community. And that's a very bad thing because, look, Israel is not perfect. Uh, we're not saying that Israel should never be criticized. Israel is a democracy. There's certainly plenty of criticism within Israel itself, within the parliament of Israel and the media. Uh, in the newspapers in Israel, there's a, a very uh, a vigorous debate. I look forward to the day when Israel can be viewed in a fair way. And if there's something that can be criticized in a fair way, like any other country, it should be. But this type of singling out of Israel, this double standard that exists against Israel, these institutions are really the most egregious example of the double standard that exists against Israel, that even the last few secretaries general of the UN have admitted exists. And I think it's not only unfair, but it's also destructive to uh, the peace process. Yeah. And just to add to that, Dan, you know, the, the, um, when the Palestinians speak of a two-state solution, they have thus far refused to acknowledge that one of the two states would be a Jewish state. And uh, one of the planks of the Palestinian position is this concept of a right of return, pursuant to which uh, not only the few thousand uh, surviving uh, refugees from the 1948 war, but also their now you know, five and a half million, six, close to six million descendants, would have the right to return to uh, land that is now part of the, of the state of Israel. And of course, if that were to occur, that would end the existence of a Jewish democratic state. So, uh, but you know, the, 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 the approach of the Palestinians is, well, okay, well, that's how you can create a two-state solution is have all these Palestinians move into to Israel and we can make it a, you know, two Palestinian states. Um, but that's something no Israeli government would ever agree to. And so as long as the Palestinians are maintaining that position, um, you're not going to make progress with respect to a two-state solution. Uh, and yet, uh, how can you expect the Palestinians to give up on that right when the UN, through these three entities that we've been talking about, are constantly endorsing the Palestinian claim of a right of return? And it's something that that, that is the primary argument that uh, we try to make to these countries, that it's not just that these entities exist solely to delegitimize uh, and demonize the state of Israel, but by endorsing the Palestinian claim of a right of return, they're creating an obstacle to any two-state solution. Yeah, you know, that's your, your points are well taken, Rick. Uh, Gil, you know, you talk about the criticism. Uh, this, what happens at the UN is not really criticism. 
Um, it's it's way beyond. It's it's an embedded, institutionalized uh, system which just goes on automatic pilot, as you've said, since 1974-75 in a very big way. But actually, up to 74 and 75 was it was there as well. I mean, Israel, for example, in all of the years that Israel has been at the UN, and I think they became a member in 1949, which is a year, maybe less than a year after statehood, they've never been a member of the Security Council. Uh, there are still very few Israelis who work in the UN system. So it's it's embedded. And and uh, Rick, you're right. What, what you have here is the, the Palestinian narrative being shielded. Uh, and their narrative is, is uh, to, to the present, a, a zero-sum narrative. All the refugees have to return very vague, if vague may not even, not even the word, not recognizing Israel as a, as a Jewish state. I once was in a meeting with Mahmoud Abbas, and he was asked by one of the leaders of, of our Jewish community here, will you recognize Israel as a Jewish state? And his answer was, well, you know, Israel can call itself whatever it wants to. Well, that, that's, 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 not, that's not the answer. And so within the UN, you know, they, they're protected and they advance this. So the work of a jury BBI and work that we, that we do in um, chipping away, and it's more than chipping away now because we, we can see that there are some changes. And I think these changes are the result of the changes that are going on in the region. I mean, it's very clear that uh, things are happening in the Arab world, part of the Arab world, uh, as it relates to Israel. And the arguments, you know, in our, you know, in our brief here are strong arguments. Gil, what's the, um, we're in a general assembly session now. What are we talking about in terms of the three committees, in terms of funding now? What's, what are the next steps? I and mean, this is gonna go on for the next year or two years. So where does that stand? In uh, 2020, the General Assembly decided to give the committee and the division two-year mandates. Uh, we have reason to believe it's because of their declining numbers. So the proponents of these institutions felt like it was uh, probably a good idea to give it two years. And then last year, the, the third institution, the special committee, was also given a two-year mandate. So this year, we have the Palestinian Committee and the Palestinian Division will be up again for a vote for the first time since 2020. And um, we uh, are certainly you know, working on reducing support for, for, for both of them. I think there's an increasing realization, like Rick mentioned, the Europeans, about half of them now have voted at least against the Palestinian Division. They're, they're tired of it, and they see that this is a uh, anachronistic, counterproductive waste of resources. Uh, there's, there's certainly money involved. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of the taxpayers of the United States money uh, going to fund these kinds of activities. It doesn't promote anything positive. Uh, but I would uh, say that, you know, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, the lie is that Zionism is a form of racism. The overwhelming clear truth is that it is not. And we certainly believe that. And I think more and more people around the world realize that that's true. So there's really no reason to support this kind of singling out of Israel, this kind of bashing Israel. And by the way, the, the votes are held always on November 29th uh, to commemorate the day of the partition resolution. So you would think that the, the supporters of, of these institutions wouldn't want to call attention to the fact that they rejected the partition resolution, but they've designated November 29th as 
support for the Palestinians day uh, every year. And there's a, a, a rash of anti-Israel resolutions. Ileana Ross Leitman called it a bash Israel day or hate Israel day. That's probably a better name for it. So we're gonna face the same thing again this year. Uh, we're realistic. We know that we're not gonna shut down the institutions yet, but we're certainly working at it. And it's important, I think, to present the facts and to make uh, people realize and countries that vote for it either out of ignorance or by rote that they're not contributing to anything positive, certainly not contributing to peace. Well, you mentioned both of you, a couple of, of great friends of our community and of the state of Israel in Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Gene Kirkpatrick. And um, Ambassador Dick Shifter is, is in that category, also a great friend of, of B'nai B'rith. We have our work cut out for us clearly, but uh, knowing that um, the work of Ajiri BBI is out there, as well as the work that we do in B'nai B'rith uh, at the United Nations will uh, continue unabated right through this General Assembly session and on into, into next year. And um, let's uh, convene, reconvene, uh, perhaps uh, some months from now and talk about, uh, hopefully, uh, some of our uh, successes uh, as we continue to work on these issues. So I think it's just worth mentioning, if listeners are interested in learning more, they should uh, go to our website at ajiri.us, um, and there's more background information. And there's also, uh, you can see the voting records of uh, each of the countries in the General Assembly going back to 2000. So lots of information at that website. Again, it's ajiri.us. Rick and Gil, thank you both for joining us to discuss the important work of a jury BBI on the world stage. If you're looking for more of our programming, visit our website, thenebra.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. Thank you again to a jury BBI chair, Rick Shifter, and executive director, Gil Capen, for joining us to break down the anti-Israel bias at the UN and to walk us through the efforts to stop it. If you like what you hear and you're in a podcast app already, tap the subscribe button to follow us. You can also listen to the show via the B'nai B'rith website. For my guests, Rick Shifter and Gil Capen, and on behalf of B'nai B'rith, I'm your host, Dan Mariasha. Talk to you again soon.